Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2, we are uh, returning uh, back to, to Second Peter just after uh, taking a break last week for, for Christmas. And uh, we're going to be picking up in, in the middle of this section, continuing uh, still to deal with this reality of false teachers. And uh, here in, in this passage that we're about to read, uh, Peter's going to explain what the eventual outcome is going to be for false teachers and for all who live and pursue ungodliness. And he's going to give examples of how the Lord has judged the world in the past for ungodly, ungodliness and how he will again do it in the future and He's giving these examples as a means of encouragement to believers to continue to be faithful as we await our own salvation and vindication in the judgments of God. So we'll begin by reading 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 down to verse 10. Peter writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And we'll stop there. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Well, Father, your word teaches us that our life, our walk with Christ will not be one that is without trials. In fact, your word promises us that there will be a variety 
of trials that believers will face. Some of those may be just the regular trials of a fallen world, sicknesses, death. Others may be persecution and sufferings as a result of the gospel. Others may involve the fight for purity and holiness and the holiness of the church, particularly in the face of the inevitability of false teaching. Your word commands us, instructs us, encourages us to be faithful in all trials. And it promises us as well that if we persevere, if we remain in faith in Christ, if we put on the Lord Jesus and keep him on, if by the power of the Spirit we fight the good fight, we will know salvation. We will receive an inheritance. And we will be vindicated. And so, Lord, I pray for our time this morning as we consider this passage especially, as we've been thinking more broadly about the call to persevere. I pray that through your word, we would be exhorted and encouraged all the more to greater obedience and godliness as we await the coming of our Lord Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When Christians, particularly of the Reformed persuasion, look to the past for examples of godliness and holiness to be followed, we often uh, look to the Puritans. The Puritans are one of the uh, great examples of faithfulness and Christian devotion from the past. They had a depth of devotion to God that is really unmatched uh, by anyone today and by many in the past. They wrote and they preached in the power of the Spirit. They spoke with soul-searching precision. And they had a warmth of devotion to the Lord. They spoke with great clarity as well. You know, when you read the Puritans, you're, you're not going to be reading anyone who's beating around the bush. They produced as well some of the brightest minds that the world has ever seen, um, even still today in you know, a philosophy class. If you were to take a philosophy, you are probably going to be introduced to Jonathan Edwards, even if modern secular philosophers don't like a word of what he said, you, you have to study him because of the brightness of, of his mind. They produce some of the greatest minds that the world has 
has seen. And it's without question that genuine revivals broke out in their day. But sometimes um, I do think that we can look at figures from the past and we can have a quite unrealistic view of what the world was like when they were living on it. We can surround ourselves with the giants of the past and believe that most everyone else was like these giants. We can think that when the Puritans were here, it was as if the kingdom of God had been established on earth and all of the world that was touched by them was turned to gold. J.I. Packer pointed out in his book, A Quest for Godliness, and this is a book, mind you, that the main purpose of, of the book is to advocate for the need of the Puritans for Christians today. But he pointed out in that book, he said that the Puritans lost more or less every public battle that they fought. They lost. Those who stayed in England did not change the Church of England as they hoped to do. Nor did they revive more than a minority of its adherents. And eventually, they were driven out of Anglicanism by calculated pressure on their consciences. Those who crossed the Atlantic failed to establish New Jerusalem in New England. For the first 50 years, their little colonies barely survived. They hung on by the skin of their teeth. They did not change the world. They didn't reform the church. They wanted to. They tried with all of their might. They strived to do so from a love of God, from a love of man, and a devotion to be faithful to his word, and to see righteousness prevail, they fought for these things. But they were not to be. They lost, Packer said, the public battles. But, he goes on to say, the moral and spiritual victories that the Puritans won by remaining sweet, peaceful, patient, obedient, and hopeful under sustained and seemingly intolerable pressures and frustrations give them a place of high honor in the Believer's Hall of Fame, where Hebrews 11 is the first gallery. What makes Christians from the past worthy of imitation is not that the whole world was changed under their watch. It's not that unbelief was practically vanquished in the world or that the public was convinced of righteousness or that Christians had won a majority. 
What makes Christians, and the Puritans in particular, giants of the faith is that even in the face of a world gone mad, even in the face of widespread corruption and apostasy in Christendom broadly, they continued to be faithful. They continued to be devoted to the Lord, and they made their light shine all the more brightly in the face of all of the darkness. If they had been the last Christians on earth, and if the whole world had scorned them as utter fools, it would not have stopped them from being the loudest who had ever heralded the gospel. And in a very real sense, this is what the Apostle Peter is preparing and encouraging the Christians of his day to do. You'll remember from prior weeks that Peter has been exhorting Christians to be godly to increase in godliness, to grow in faith, in knowledge, in love, and in righteousness, to confirm their calling and election. But what we find when we come to chapter 2 is a warning of sorts. It's a call to be prepared for the fact that Christians, just like the Old Testament saints will be surrounded by a sea of ungodliness and false teachers even in their midst. You remember from the beginning of chapter 2 that Peter says that there will be false teachers just as there were false prophets in Israel's day. And then what else does he say? He says, and many, many will follow after them. They are not going to have the experience of living in a world where the gospel and the way of truth, as he calls it, is untainted by the corrupting influence of wickedness. They will be minorities. They will be minorities and remnants of true believers in the midst of an ungodly world. But Peter does not want Christians to lose hope in such a situation. And so he makes the point, stated specifically in verse 9, that God will rescue the godly from trials and will punish the unrighteous. The trials that the godly need rescuing from in context is the trial of remaining righteous in the midst of all of this unrighteousness. And to support his point, 
that God will rescue these believers. That God will rescue the godly, punish the wicked. He cites three examples from the Old Testament where God did that very thing. Punished evil and rescued the righteous. This section, this passage that we are in, is meant to encourage Christians to remain faithful, to persevere in faithfulness and godliness. And so as we consider this passage today, I want to give you four exhortations for how you can persevere in faithfulness even in the midst of a world that is dominated by all manners of ungodliness. And the first exhortation is this. You are to shout louder than the majority. Shout louder than the majority. Now, I don't mean by this that we should raise the decibels of our voice. This is not a call to go outside and yell louder than the motorcycles driving by. This is not a call either to form counter-protests of all other protests that we see, many of which advocate for all kinds of ungodliness and to bring a megaphone and shout louder than they're shouting. Christians do not raise their voices above the majority by the strength of their vocal cords, but by the clarity and the truthfulness of their message. Noah is our example of this. Verse 5, Peter refers to the story of Noah and the flood as an example of God rescuing the righteous and punishing the wicked. The world in Noah's day is referred to as the ancient world that was not spared. But notice with me especially what is said of Noah. In contrast to the world of the ungodly that was flooded, which speaks of how saturated with sin it was. The world of the ungodly. The world, we might say, that belonged to the ungodly. In contrast to this, Noah, we are told, was a herald or a preacher of righteousness. And it might be better to to, to understand and to translate this word as we have it in the ESV, preacher, to herald, just so as not to imagine an image of Noah standing behind a pulpit and preaching in a church. He's not a preacher in that sense of the word. He is rather someone who announced and heralded righteousness in the face of all of the evil that was around him. Now, if you go to the text of Genesis 6, where this is being referenced, Moses does not use the specific word of herald to describe Noah. But he does make a clear contrast between him and the rest of the world. 
We are told that it was Noah alone who found favor with God. And while the rest of the world is described as corrupt and filled with violence, while every thought and every intention of the heart of man was only evil continually, Noah is described as a righteous man, blameless in his generation and one who walked with God. Peter is part of a long tradition of interpreters who rightly understood that Noah's righteousness was not some quiet, monkish isolation and separation from the rest of the world. He lived in the midst of all of this ungodliness. He spent years building an ark as a visible testimony of the coming judgment of God. And of course, Noah was a prophet. Noah received revelation from the Lord about the coming judgment. And one of the things that prophets do is prophesy, herald, announce what the word of the Lord is. Hence, the reason why Noah is referred to here as elsewhere as a herald of righteousness. Most fundamentally, he was a prophet. The point is this. Noah never won the majority over to the Lord. In fact, he won no one to the Lord. To modern standards, Noah's ministry would be a total failure. The whole world was against him, and every voice spoke contrary to his message. Every deed that was done was the exact opposite of the deeds of Noah. And yet, his voice and his voice alone was the loudest of all. Why? Because he had the favor of God. He was speaking with the megaphone of the Lord, announcing the truths of the word of God. He heralded righteousness when everyone else had hearts that were set to do evil. That's what I mean when I say that we must shout louder than the majority. Christian faithfulness requires that we speak a message of righteousness with clarity and with immovable conviction. While all the world is being blown about by every new wind of doctrine, while it is completely lost in confusion, and while it cannot determine the difference between good and evil, while it justifies itself by proclaiming that moral matters are simply too complicated a matter, too subjective of an issue, therefore let us live however we please. 
while it is proclaiming all of these messages, the Christian must stand upon the word of God and in all matters declare, thus says the Lord. You stand on the word of God, which dictates and determines all reality, past, present, and future. We cannot be silent when we see or are faced with obvious evil. We cannot attempt to make friends with the world by modifying the Word of God or relegating godliness to what we do in the privacy of our own homes and our churches. We will lose the power of our voice the moment we compromise on the message of the way of truth. And so we must herald righteousness. And we must do so in our lives, in our deeds, and with our lips. And even if we never win the public battles, even if we never gain the world, we are to bear witness to the truth because that's what simple faithfulness requires of us. Not that we achieve the end results. That's in the hands of God. But that as messengers, we proclaim what God has revealed to the world. Now, the second exhortation is this. Don't smile at your torment. Don't smile at your torment. This is what I mean. If you can imagine for a moment a soldier who's been captured by his enemies and he's being tortured for information, we often think that it's a sign of his strength if he can act like the torture doesn't faze him. He can look his enemy in the eye as he's being tormented and he can smile as if nothing is happening to him. That's a, that's, that's a sign of strength. Many Christians as well act as if that's how we are to relate to the world and how we are to respond to sin. If we can watch a movie or watch a show with nudity in it, and we can be unfazed by the images, it's a sign of how strong we are, that our conscience isn't bothered. If we can be in company with those who are constantly making coarse and wicked jokes, and we can join in the banter and laugh about it, it just shows how much like Jesus we are. That, that we can eat with sinners, right, as the, the, the phrase is often cited. And as if Jesus' only purpose was to show just how like everyone else he was. 
If we can easily stomach the sin that is around us, you know, if we can say to all of it, bring it on, I can take it. This is no issue for me. As if it's just a natural part of life. It's just a, it's a given considering the world that we live in. It's a fallen world. It's to be expected. This is seen as the Christian being strong. Wise in the world. I want you to notice how Peter describes Lot in this other example that he references. He describes Lot as a righteous man. Which is not to say that Lot was without his own sin. He certainly, in a panic, offered his daughters to the men of Sodom and subsequently had a drunken episode with them. And of course, because of that part of Lot's life, many people are often rather confused that Peter could refer to Lot as a righteous man. But let me just say a few things briefly, a sort of a parenthetical note. Can you name one other person in Scripture who is held up as an example of righteousness who is not without grievous sin? David is a man after God's own heart, is the description given to him. And yet David has some deathly, devastating sins. So this is not to say that every part of Lot's life was righteous. He's called righteous not because he never sinned. He's called righteous for three reasons at least. One, he was a believer in the Lord. Two, when the angels of God came to Sodom, he showed hospitality to them, which demonstrated much more about a person's character then than it does now. You know, we usually just think of hospitality as just like this, you know, easy thing. You have somebody over for dinner and then they go about the, you know, their business afterwards and how hospitable are we? But, but in, in his time, you welcome someone into your house to spend the night, some stranger, you're showing hospitality to them. Their life is in your hands. So he shows hospitality to these angels in this respect and he did everything he could to protect them, even to a fault. And then three, when Sodom was destroyed, of course, the Lord saved Lot in accordance with his promise that he would not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. There's important reasons why he's called righteous, but the point for us is that Peter upholds him as an example of a righteous man. And I want you to notice what he says about this righteous man's response to the sin he was surrounded by. Verse 7, righteous Lot was greatly distressed. Another way you could phrase it, he was oppressed at what he saw by the sensual conduct of the wicked by the sensual way of life that was around him. 
verse 8 explains further that as he lived among the sodomites day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul by what he saw and what he heard of their lawless deeds. In other words, every time he saw the wicked ways of Sodom, it was like a sword being thrust through his own conscience. It troubled him. It distressed him. Even though it was his home, to see the perversion that he was surrounded by was like torture. Constantly. There was nothing pleasant about living in such a wicked place. Which is why when he first encountered the angels and they told him that they would sleep in the town square, the Bible says that he urged them strongly to come into his home. You have to get out of the town square immediately and stay with me. There's a desperation in his voice. And there's a desperation there because he knew by the things that he had seen and heard that this place was a cesspool of sin. He did not get to a point where he could live his life comfortably and simply dismiss the sodomy around him as just the unfortunate reality of a fallen world. Despite his own moral flaws, no doubt brought about by the culture that he was living in, his soul was never at ease in Sodom. And yet, friends, we live in the same kind of world. With Sodom all around. And many Christians consider it as a badge of honor that they can live in this world almost completely untroubled. It's as if it's an aspect of their righteousness and their strength rather than evidence of a seared conscience and a worldly faith. As you live in the midst of Sodom, would you describe your own soul this way? Tormented. Tormented by the lawless deeds you see and hear. Or is it at ease? Moving past Lot, for a moment. I think of another example. We can often go to other parts of the world where there's idolatry everywhere. You see the idols, the statues, the things that people worship. And we go there and we have sort of an interest in it. Isn't this amazing? What a 
strange but beautiful piece of work. And yet I'm reminded when Paul saw idols, he was provoked in his spirit. Why? Because these things are killing people. They're dying. And it's the same thing with, with Lot. He's tormented. The question is, how is our soul as we live in Sodom? Is it at ease? I think the weakness of the Christian church today is evidenced by how comfortable we've become with sin. Sensitive consciences are not a sign of weakness. Hard ones are. Moreover, the less we are troubled by the sin around us and the sin within us, the less inclined we are going to be to cry out to God for his divine intervention, for revival, for societal change and renewal, and for salvation. Why would we pray desperately and act zealously over things that do not bother us all that much? We wouldn't. And the fact that the church, by and large, has been deathly quiet and tolerant and prayerless as the culture descends deeper and deeper into sin tells us how weak and compromised we've become. The more we compromise, the more we will encourage what should continue. Hence the exhortation. Don't smile at your torments. For what should torment? Don't encourage it. Don't harden your conscience to sin. Don't wink at it. Don't dismiss it as no matter of great significance. It is because of such things that the wrath of God is coming. You should be tormented by ungodliness, both yours and others. And that torment should drive you to your knees, drive you to concerned pleas to the world to repent. You'll remember in the story of Lot, again, and the men of Sodom as the men were banging on the door to commit their great sins. Lot is crying out to them. I beg you, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. He's pleading with them. Don't do this wickedness. We have to plea and we have to speak plainly of 
about the nature and the evil of sin. Which leads me to a third exhortation. Euthanize your euphemisms. I must admit, I'm using this phrase just as a catchy one for you to remember. To euthanize something, ironically, is something of a euphemism itself. It's basically a polite way of saying you're going to kill something. And the euphemisms, when you use less precise or neutral sounding or, or really even deceptive language to describe things that we'd rather not think about or confront truthfully. So, for example, one very common euphemism we hear a lot today is that of ending a pregnancy. That's a euphemism. It's what we say when we don't want to say, killing your baby. We put other words in place of that. Ending for killing. Pregnancy for baby. We, we cloud the reality of the thing. And Christians, likewise, love euphemisms. In many cases, we've just adopted the euphemisms of the culture, but we also have plenty of our own. Maybe we don't like speaking about sin, so we talk about mistakes, not being perfect. Or we psychologize everything. A man commits adultery, what does he need? Marriage therapy. Not repentance, marriage therapy. Someone keeps habitually giving into some sin over and over again, and rather than describing the situation as it truly is, you are a slave to sin. What do we say? I'm struggling. I'm struggling. The reality is that you're not. There's no struggle. And you are continually giving in to sin over and over and over again. Feeling remorse is no evidence of a struggle. A struggle would mean that you are actively fighting against the sin, but habitually giving in is just disobedience and slavery. The point is that if we're going to remain faithful, we have to kill our euphemisms. We have to speak plainly and we have to speak biblically. We have to do so because that's what's modeled for us all throughout Scripture. I want you to just notice in our short little passage here the language that Peter uses to describe sin and the people who practice it. Verse 5, the ancient world is the world of the ungodly or the wicked. Verse 7, the sensual 
conduct, the sensual way of life is what distressed Lot. Verse 8, lawless deeds. Verse 9, the unrighteous are kept for the day of judgment. And in verse 10, as perhaps the most vivid description of all in this passage, Peter speaks literally here of those who go after flesh. They're going after bodies, flesh, and they do so in a habitual manner. It's a constant going after flesh. And they're driven to this flesh hunting, this sexual perversion by what he calls defiled passions, unclean passions. When the biblical authors are describing the nature of sin, they're not holding back so as not to offend anyone. They are accurately describing the true nature of sin. It's true evil as God sees it. The more we use euphemisms and clouded speech or political correctness to describe what biblically speaking and in the eyes of God is pure evil, the more we will add to the confusion and the less serious sin will be taken. Not only by those outside of the church, but those within. It's the devil who loves euphemisms. who loves painting sin in a much better light than it actually is. But we must speak plainly. We must call sin, sin, not for the sake of being provocative, though it will be provocative to a world that does not want to confront its sin. We must do so for the sake of shining a light brightly on the deeds of darkness. The world will not know the true nature of evil if the word of God is not revealed to it. Apart from God, apart from his word, the world is all over the place in terms of what they designate good and evil. I, I remember, you know, you all probably familiar with Joe Rogan, very well-known podcaster, very influential, lots of people listen to him. And, and I'll listen occasionally just to hear sort of the moral framework that he's operating in. And, and, and you can see at, at times he's, he's looking at all of the gender confusion that's going on right now and he's rightly saying, this is absurd. This makes no sense. And then on the other hand, he's saying homosexual marriage is fine and good. There's no underlying moral foundation to any of this. And that's how the world operates. It's whatever goes. 
whatever is pleasing to me, that's what's good and true. And as Christians, we must speak clearly and plainly about what is good and true and beautiful in accordance with the Word of God. Finally, we must hope in God's judgment. We must hope in God's judgment. Now, we tend to love, rightly so, speaking about hoping in God's salvation. Not many Christians conceive of God's judgment of something to hope in, though, and yet it's really the same thing. It's the other side of the coin. When we desire God to save us in the ultimate sense of Christ returning again, whether we realize it or not, we are desiring Christ to return as the conquering king who will judge all sin and evil and destroy the wicked. That's what it means to desire Christ to come. He's not coming again in a lowly manger. It's not all about the pearly gates and the rivers of living water. Salvation will also be bloody. Let me say that again. Salvation will be bloody. The rider on the white horse in Revelation 19, which is Jesus coming in power and glory, we are told, comes in a robe dipped in blood. He comes to judge the wicked. And this whole passage is about this very fact that God will judge the ungodly. Every example that Peter cites is an example of God's past actions of judgment. The first in verse 4 is a reference to fallen, rebellious angels that are mentioned briefly in Genesis 6, referred to there as the sons of God who left their positions of authority and had unnatural relations with women on earth. And God judged them for it. And the second, of course, is a reference to the flood that destroyed the whole world in the days of Noah. And then the third, of course, refers to the complete destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. All three of these examples are cited as examples of God's past judgments. And the point that Peter is making is that God's character in the past, when it comes to dealing with sin, has not changed. The gospel and the cross of Christ does not change how God will judge the world. If he judged it then, he will judge it in the future. What the cross of Christ provides is a means by which the ungodly can be saved from that judgment. As if getting onto the ark of Noah and being carried through the flood. But if you don't get in the ark, 
What's outside? The flood of judgment. Verse 9, Peter says, as he references these examples, he says he knows, God knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And for Peter's audience and for us, this is intended to be a point that we find hope in. The reason being, of course, is that even if we are surrounded on all sides by evil, if it is tormenting us day after day and we find ourselves almost feeling hopeless, and that can very often be the case when you see so much wickedness, we're to remember that no ungodliness will go unpunished. And God will rescue his people. God will carry out his justice. And he will vindicate his people. This is one of those truths that is intended to encourage us to more faithfulness. Because even if our faithfulness brings us suffering in the present, God promises that he will rescue us at the appointed time. So, you shout louder than the majority. You speak righteousness. You herald it. You stand for it. You stand on the word of God. You don't smile at your torment. You don't treat sin as a light manner you kill your euphemism euphemisms and you await the coming judgment in hope knowing that god at that time will rescue his people let's go to the lord in prayer well father again is we read these words, and as Peter is writing to your people long ago, your people who were surrounded by many false teachers, many who were going after them, and because of which the way of truth was being blasphemed and ridiculed, they were a people who needed hope, who needed a reminder to continue on in the good fight. And we likewise, Lord, we need these reminders, we need these exhortations that despite whatever may be around us and despite whatever may be in us, you have given to us the Spirit of God and the Word of God and you equip us to do every good work and to bear witness to Christ in a fallen world. And so, Lord, I do pray for us. I pray that you would keep us faithful, that we would be bold in our walk with the Lord, that we would look to great examples of the past, those who've gone before us and have done the very same things, and that we 
in your eyes would be described as Noah was in his day, as those who are righteous and blameless in this generation. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.